Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read the scripture verse, and then at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. Romans three twenty-seven through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rebecca. Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. We are continuing in a series in Romans. And um, months ago when we were thinking about this series, I decided to name it Why Jesus. Like that was the subtitle for Romans, uh, or Why Jesus, a study in the book of Romans, because I feel like it's, that's what it is, is the explanation of why we need um, Jesus. And uh, Paul has spent the first few chapters of the book telling us that we need Jesus because we have a problem that we cannot fix collectively and individually, and it's a gigantic problem, and we can and do resist the idea that there's something wrong with us that we can't we can't do anything about, but, but little seems to be more self-evident than that, this truth in, in life, in, in our world today. And it starts in here, and then it moves to like the circles close to us, and then it moves out there. So it starts inside of us, and then it moves to our families. How many of you are part of a dysfunctional family? Everyone's hand should be raised right now, you know? And then it moves out from that. You're a part of a dysfunctional church, right? Because we don't function exactly the way that we're supposed to. And dysfunctional schools and dysfunctional neighborhoods. And then it moves out to cities and our cultures and our world. And we're tempted to think the problem is pretty much them. Um, and maybe a little bit of us. But mostly them. Uh, and Paul's saying, no, that's it. That's not it. Like the problem starts, it's us. And it's them. But it's us. Um, and the essence of the problem is that we're made to be righteous, but we're not. In other words, there's a way that we're supposed to be, but we are far from it. And I read a quote last week um, from a Russian author. He said, I, I do not know the heart, what, what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. And that's just a powerful quote because we could probably all say that in truth. And so last week, we get to the point, and it's really a hinge in the letter to the Romans where he says there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for him, the distinction is between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, because that's how they broke up the world, you know. And he said, there's no distinction. For us, it might be there's no distinction between Democrats and Republicans. There's no distinction. All have sinned, or however you want to break that up. It could be by race. It could be Carolina and state fans. It could be whatever. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then, our are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God himself put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so him saying this is like 
just like lobbing grenades into this. It's the, this verse is the heart of it's what the Bible is all about. It's about what the faith is all about. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of humanity is in it. And he uses the big church words. So justification. Even though you were unrighteous, now you're made righteous because of God's grace in Christ. And I made the distinction between justification and pardon and how we see presidential pardons every four years, but they leave us feeling a little bit slimy. We don't think there's any righteousness in those things. But here, that word justification means there's no basis on which to accuse us anymore if we've been justified in Christ. You can't even bring up the, there's nothing slimy about it. He's, he's fixed it. In, um, in to the second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he's done. It's our unrighteousness is gone. If we're in Christ, he's given us, we've become the righteousness of God. So justification, propitiation, God's rightful anger against our sin has been satisfied. And God's anger is hard for us to grasp. But I was talking to my son, Jonathan, we were driving to school this week and we were talking about about this, or we were going through a catechism and, and um, about wrath and anger, and I, and I, I brought up when uh, a couple years ago, we went through a phase in our house where Michael, our firstborn, was, was trying to like rightfully hold his place as a firstborn by bullying the youngest in the house. And so that just happens. How many of you are firstborns? How many of you were bullies at some point in your life growing up? But yeah, it just kind of happens, you know? And, uh, and I told Johnny, if, if when that happened, I just was like, well, Johnny, deal with it. Like, would that, how would you have felt? He said, I wouldn't have felt very good. Like, it wouldn't be love for me just to turn a blind eye. And instead, I was righteously angry with Michael for doing it. And God's got that, like, with 8 billion people all over the world, like, he's got that. But it's been, his rightful anger has been satisfied uh, through the blood of Jesus. That's what the verse says, propitiated by his blood, and we've been redeemed, which is so justification, propitiation, redemption. We were slaves to sin. That was the power it had over us. But now we're set free from that slavery uh, to the thing that was keeping us from being righteous. And he wraps all these things up and gives it to us as a gift and says, here you go. You don't owe me anything. Here, this is just a gift for you and Jesus. And so that is, that verse, those two verses are like a nuclear bomb going off. You know, they go off and then it just spreads out. And this spreads out. This is, and, and that's what Paul's going to deal with the rest of the letter. One, one um, pastor I read wrote, wrote this. He said, your mind should be deeply satisfied with the doctrine of justification. You say, I see it. It's staggering. He accepts me because Jesus paid for all my flaws. What a wonder. You never get tired of thinking about it. You can't get enough of it. It's not a dry doctrine which you simply understand mechanically. It's the wellspring of your joy, a truth that makes your heart sing because it's about you and your justification and your freedom and your confidence springs from this. Um, it's like, a, and it's more than just a, like a, like the bomb that goes off and spreads. It's more like the fission or fusion reaction that's self-perpetuating that just keeps going. And it's the engine room of the life of faith in Jesus is this. And it's different than any faith. No other faith makes claims like this. And now Paul starts talking about, okay, what does this mean? And again, he'll spend chapters talking about what this really means and answering questions that will logically come up 
um, to what he said. And he starts here, and it's just like, took, take, it took me a while to get my mind around why he starts here. So he says, then what becomes of our boasting? That's it. That's where he starts. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. So he starts with how does the gospel change the way that we see ourselves and relate to other people? That's a pretty good place to start because that's what boasting really is. And in the same passage that Rebecca read, he's going to move into um, is God the God of the Jews only and not the Gentiles? So kind of is God racist? And I'll talk about that next week. And then the, the last one is about do we have to follow the rules anymore? What do we do with the law? So he just starts moving, but he starts here with boasting. And what he does is he, it's like he brings up these three issues right at the end of chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, he uses the life of Abraham to speak into those three issues. So there's these three little issues he brings up in these few verses, and then all of chapter 4 is devoted to like using Abraham as an explanation for those things. And we're going verse by verse through Romans, so we're going to spend some time um, with Abraham. And this is going to get a little thick for a second, and then I'm going to come, come back to the boasting in particular and... Um, and what that means. But what he's doing, what Paul is doing by going to Abraham, because he's got a lot of Jewish Christians in this church in Rome, is he's, part of what he's saying is God, has not, God is not dealing with us differently now than he did then. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And so he's working to show them that God dealt with Abraham the same way that he's dealing with us. And the other thing that he's doing is because he's going to bring David into this thing too. Two of their, probably their two biggest heroes, maybe with Moses of the faith, is that if Abraham and David weren't justified by works, you're not going to be justified by works either. They were justified by faith, and you're going to be justified by faith and giving them more reason to believe this. So let me go into Romans 4 for a few minutes um, and, and, and what he says about Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what, is, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you're either justified by your works, or you're justified by faith in the work that God has done for you. Um, in, a, in a couple weeks ago, there's a passage that, that John preached, um, Paul said, by the works of the flesh, no man is going to be justified, and that includes Abraham. So he wasn't justified by works, and he points out this verse that he, was, he believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. A few minutes on Abraham. Um, Abraham is, uh, comes in the Old Testament early. He comes in Genesis 12. He comes after creation and the fall and the whole story of Noah and the Tower of Babel where God separates the nations. And all those first chapters, I think a lot of what they're meant to tell us, a lot of things, as much as anything, they're meant to tell us, if God leaves us alone with our sin, this place is going to go to hell in a handbasket fast. Like, it's the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans. We have a problem that we cannot fix. And that's a big part of what those first few chapters of Genesis tell us. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I got a plan to fix this thing, and I want you to be a part of it, Abraham. And so this is his call. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I'm going to curse them, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
this is, this is a, a heck of an offer, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, my blessing will be on you. Like, just stop right there. If God said, I will, my blessing will be on you for your life. Like, sign me up for that, you know? And then he says, I'm going to, he's 75 at this point, doesn't have any kids. So I'm going to give you not just a child and not even just a family, but that family is going to become a nation. And you are going to be a national leader, Abraham. And I'm going to protect you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. How many of you would like God to curse the people that curse you? Like, you got somebody at work you'd like God to curse? Come on, let's be honest. We're in church. Got to be honest about this. Uh, maybe, yes. School. Got somebody at school? Come on. Uh, there's all, like in a, kind of a promise of fame, of legacy. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And all you got to do is leave your father's house. And you don't always like those people anyway. And so this is an offer that he makes to him. And Abraham takes it, and he goes. And he's the first Jewish person. There's no Jewish people before Abraham. Uh, God gives him a family, and his family is going to eventually become the Jewish nation. So he's the father of the Jew. How many people grew up with that song? Father Abraham has many kids. See, I didn't grow up with it. I didn't grow up in church, enough church to get that song. But that's it. So, so... It says, by faith, this is um, in Hebrews, like the author of Hebrews given kind of the highlights of Abraham's life. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So he starts in, um, like the Persian Gulf is where he grew up, and then he ends up going through the river, the, the river valley to Haran, and then he goes down to the promised land to Canaan. And there's Canaanites in Canaan, which is a problem. But he goes to a place that he didn't even know where it was, and God leads him there. It says, By faith he went to live in the land and promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson. So he's living as a foreigner in a land where there's already people that God said, this is going to be your land. And he's like, I don't know how you're going to do that. Heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then it says, By faith Sarah, his wife, herself, received the power to conceive even when she was past the age. So she's about 90 when she has um, Isaac. Since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as numerable as the grains of sand on the seashore. And crazy stuff happens in Abraham's life. So he gets to the land, there's people there, and he grows wealthy among the people, and then there's a famine. So he goes to Egypt and somehow comes across the king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt has the hots for his wife, and so he tells Sarah to tell everybody that she's a sister, which is a super creepy part of the story, um, but he gets through that, and they go back to the promised land, and they get to a point where Sarah's like, we're never having a kid. I got this maid servant here. Just have a kid with her, and we'll call that the kid, and Abraham thinks that's a good idea, and she changes her mind. Like, who could have seen that one coming? Abraham, maybe you know, not super bright. And then God, even God's like, what were you thinking? That's not the kid that I was talking about. And that kid by Hagar is Ishmael. And, and Islam claims Ishmael as, as their father through the lineage. And so all that comes out of that. And then after 25 years of waiting, when he's about 100, they have the kid, Isaac. And then, and then some 12, 13, 14 years later, God says, take him up on this mountain, Mount Moriah, which is the same mountain where Jesus gets crucified. And 
and sacrifice him to me. So this is a picture of a father sacrificing a son that's pointing forward 2,000 years. And so he's ready to do it, and God rescues him. It's, it's an unbelievable story. It's worth a whole series on Abraham's stories. But he makes it, and the Jewish people are around today because this one guy did what God told him to. He got the job done. He did the work. He worked. And so in their minds, like he's justified by his works. Um, but in God's mind, he's not. He believed, and God counted that to him as righteousness. And that's a huge distinction for them. So he, um, he said, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Where is our boasting? But not before God, for Scripture says Abraham believed, and it was counted him as righteousness. So this is, um, he keys in on like an early episode in Abraham's story. So he gets to the promised land. This might have been after he got back from Egypt. And his nephew, Lot, gets kidnapped by these five kings. And so Abraham chases him down and gets Lot back. And they're going back to wherever it was that he was staying in Israel. And he runs across this shadowy figure named Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, which ends up being Jerusalem. And Salem is like the king of righteousness. And Melchizedek, when he meets with Abraham, brings out bread and wine, which is there's somebody else that brings bread and wine. And Melchizedek in Hebrews is, is a pre, or Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he's a king and a priest. And he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him 10% of all he has. It's a crazy part of the story. And right after that, um, Abraham and God have this discussion about whether or not God's going to come through in this promise. And God says, fear not, we got this. And Abraham's like, do we really got this? You know, because it's been like maybe 10 years, 5, 10 years since he's since he made the decision to follow him and, and left his father's house and all this. And he says, it doesn't look so much like, to me like we got this because I don't have a kid. And some guy in Damascus is my heir. And so where's the kid that you keep talking about? And God brings him outside and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And here it says, Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. This is the moment. In that moment, something he believed and his faith was counted to him as righteous. He was justified in that moment. Um, it wasn't his works. It was his faith. And the things that he did, his works, were a manifestation of his faith. But the things he did didn't make him righteous. His faith in God was, and what God was going to do was the thing that made him righteous. And so God, Paul is telling the Romans, like, see, this is how God, even with Abraham, it wasn't what he did. It was his faith in what God was going to do uh, for him. And so back to that verse in Romans. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For Scripture says he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And counted is an accounting term. It's like moving some, something from one side of the ledger to the other. And it's used throughout this passage in Romans. So he goes on in Romans now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due, right? I mean, you have a job, and when, you're, when, you're, when you get your paycheck, you're, you're not like, oh, man, thank you so much for paying me this week. That was so nice of you to pay me, you know? You're not. If they don't pay you, you're like, I ain't working if you ain't paying me because that's not how this works. Like, I work, you pay. That's how it works, Right? Unless you have paychecks doing your payroll for you, in which case it doesn't work. Actually, they pay you more because that's what they've been doing. So uh, 
sorry. Uh, it's counted. It's counted not as a gift, but it, as your due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he brings in David, says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works, um, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, so he brings both these guys in and says they weren't justified by their works, they were justified by their faith. Um, and if Abraham couldn't earn it and David couldn't earn it, you're not going to earn it. God gave it to you as a gift through the work of Jesus, a gift, and all you did was receive it. And so he's just making that point down. Now, his initial question, where then, what then becomes of our boasting? What then becomes of our boasting? Let me ask a question. What real answers? What types of things do we boast about? Kids? For sure. Pardon me? Jobs? Yep. Yes. Success. Yep. Sports teams, success. Oh, yeah. How much we all have our lives together. How many people got your life all together? <laughs> but we pretend like we got our lives together. Pardon me? Yeah. Until we can't. Yeah. Um, Paul was talking at church, so let me ask this. Do we boast about righteousness? Do we boast about righteousness? Do people boast about righteousness? Any type of righteousness. <laughs> Only in a humble way. Nice. Um, yeah, honestly, I started thinking about the, the little yard signs. The we believe yard signs. Which is, I mean, it's a virtue signaling boasting in righteousness, right? Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this guy was, he was in an interview, and the guy was talking about how, I'm going to be careful how I do this because these words can mean so many different things, but how he said the woke left right now are like the new Puritans, and he was referring to the ones that killed the witches in Salem, in the Salem witch trials. Now, the guy that said that, before you get all righteous on me and judgy, the guy that said it, was a self, self-described left-wing gay man that was the one that was answering the question and saying all that stuff. So, like, not a religious right type person, but he was saying, like, yeah, the people way out on the left have become the new Puritans. And so that's it, right? And, but then the, the people on the way right and all of us have our form of righteousness that we're bragging about in one way or another. Everything about cancel culture and so much about the division in our culture right now has to do with boasting in our righteousness and needing to hold on to whatever that self-righteousness is and however we see ourselves as righteous. Do we, within the church, boast before God about our righteousness? And I I would say yes. Like, I mean, that's the trap 
of any religious community. You know, when Jesus gets on the Pharisees' case in the New Testament, um, says you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but leave the weightier portions of the law, you neglect the weightier portions of the law, so we'll find the thing that we can do and say, well, we got that right, and ignore the things that we know that we can't do because we like to live in the things that we can do and not the things that we can't is like kind of leaning into it. We're just always searching for some type of righteousness that can be a self-righteousness that we can accomplish on our own. Even in Romans, when we went through the passages that said no one has done good, not even one, to the extent that we resist that, we're, we're leaning into our own righteousness and not thinking we could be that unrighteous in the face of what the Bible is telling us. And even that quote that I used last week and earlier today, I know the heart of a good man, and it's terrible. To the, offen- to, to the extent that, that like you're like, ah, Jeff, I don't know about that. That's kind of offensive, is the extent to which we lean into our own righteousness. I said this about, I said this, I, I don't know, a month or two ago now, that part of what I think Romans is driving us to is that we're made for law. We start with law, and that's the garden. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, we're made for law, and then we failed at law, and, and we have a hard time dealing with that because we're made to be able to obey it, but we can't. And so then we get grace in Jesus, but it just, it doesn't, See, like we just can't get all of grace most people just can't get it completely at the beginning so we're like okay jesus did this thing for me and i get that because i can't do everything but then i must have a part to play in it too and so he'll do his part and i'll do my part and it's grace plus love and then we're like that doesn't even make sense because jesus did a whole lot more than i did so that's grace and i had grace i'm forgiven by jesus but now i better get my act together so grace then law but then paul is driving and will drive to the point of like nope it was grace yesterday and grace today and it's going to have to be grace tomorrow because there's something else i'm going to screw up and it's just grace and grace and grace and grace and that just drives us to the to a, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness he's driving us to this place where where is our boasting it's no place because we've got we've got nothing to boast about and we don't need to boast about anything um thought of a quote from Martin Lloyd, Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British preacher. He said, the man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He's not always watching himself in his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. To be truly meek means we no longer defend ourselves because we see that there's nothing worth defending. And that's where Paul has taken us. And it's a disarming place to be to realize how little we can do for ourselves, how much we need him, and just how much he's done for us. Um, and boasting, like, I think goes beyond the religious self-righteous boasting, but just it's the boasting that when I ask the question, what do we boast about, the things we naturally boast about tend to be not like um, the vertical things, but the horizontal things where we boast before each other. And so that is about success and stuff and image and kids and um, what I bet most of you don't boast like out loud. You know what I mean? Like we boast inside, right? But we don't do a lot of boasting out loud. Why do we boast? Why do we boast on the inside? Yeah. Yeah, it makes us feel better about ourselves gives us like some form of rest. Um, 
Honestly, boasting makes us feel righteous. Because we find somebody else that's got this a little bit less than us, and then we can be more right in whatever realm it is than that person. It lets us, gives us a way to think that we're good and that we're worthy of love because there's some comparison that we've won. So we, just, we justify ourselves with the things that we boast about. And Paul's saying, no, you've been justified in Christ, so you don't need it. Where is our boasting? We don't need it anymore. And I think we are trained in this. I think everybody's always done this. I think we're, I think we're probably more prone to it in the United States because um, our culture is, as Rebecca alluded to, so we have some competitive people in our church. Like, we're, we're just so competitive um, and that's done a lot of good things for the United States, and I would argue for the world, but we're so competitive. Our economy is kind of driven on you're not good enough until you buy my product, and then you're good enough, but you're really not good enough then, so you've got to buy the upgraded version of our product or whatever it is. I was listening to a guy this week named Arthur Brooks who teaches on happiness at the Harvard Business School. It's the most popular class at the Harvard Business School. It's a class on how to be happy. Isn't that great? Let's <laughs> speak into this whole thing. And he is, a, I think, Catholic um, guy, but sounds, I mean, he sounds genuine in his faith, and, um, but he was talking about how um, he said after he dropped out or got kicked out of college, depending on who you ask, he ended up going over to Spain, and now he's teaching at the Harvard Business School. You know, he went over to Spain, and he, I guess he was really good at playing the French horn, so he joined the, the, um, the symphony in Barcelona, which is not a bad backup plan if college doesn't work out for you, you know? And so he was there for 10 years, met his wife, and they've kind of gone back and forth between the United States and Spain throughout their adult life. And he said, when you're at a, when you're at a dinner party in the United States, and again, this guy teaches at the Harvard Business School, and so he's at some highfalutin dinner parties. He said, the first question that anybody asks you is what? What do you do? Right? Um, almost without fail. He said, in Spain, the first question that they ask you, what do you think it is? close. Where are you going on vacation? <laughs> uh, Kendall and Lisa, who moved to Portugal, have like affirmed this. This is a different thing. Like I know, I have a friend whose wife worked for a company based out of Barcelona for years, and she said, yeah, they take August off, and they know that they won't miss anything because we'll work extra hard to make up for what they're not doing, because all of Europe takes August off, you know? And it's like they're past where we are, like they're just older than we are as cultures, and some, at some point we're going to get there. Um, but where we are is, what do you do? And, and we're going to compare each other. And as long as I'm better at one thing than someone around me, or my group is better than another group, then I have some righteousness. We boast as a, like a medication against this thing in our souls that we know is drastically broken. And we're just compelled by it. What's the opposite of boasting? Or maybe the opposite of arrogance? This isn't a great question. Here's what I'm thinking about. Shame. <laughs> like when you lose the comparison. When you win the comparison, you get a form of righteousness. When you lose it, you get a form of shame. Feeling like we need to hide. because We lost the comparison. Like, there's an unrighteousness to us. This goes all the way back to the garden where they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God shows up and says, what happened? And Adam says what? The woman you gave me. 
He throws God and his wife under the bus in the same sentence. It's impressive. Uh, she did it. And anybody that has had more than one kid, you've heard that phrase every day since the second one was born, right? It's just instinct. They, I didn't do it. They must have done it. Um, And so it's the boasting of righteousness and avoiding the shame of unrighteousness. And so when Paul asks that question, where then is our boasting? Here's what I think he's doing. He's saying that the very center of your life, the thing that you were made for, the thing you need the most is given to you as a gift. And so you don't need, you don't need all that anymore. And it's going to take you a long time to totally get that, to realize it. But that justification and redemption and propitiation is the thing that you need the most, and God has given it to you. You've been declared innocent. You've been given a righteousness that's not your own. God's, any anger he has with your sins and their consequences has been resolved, and you've been set free from that sin, even if it doesn't feel like that yet. You cannot boast. You need not compare. And he's offering us a freedom from all that a relationship of pure love and grace between you and the God who made you and everyone around you. And it's supposed to change your relationship with everyone around you. A few years ago, um, we used the stuff that a, a church out, or I don't even know who this came from, but it was called the four G's. And so they talked about how God is great, God is good, God is gracious, and God is glorious. So um, God is great. Uh, and so he's big enough to be in control of all things. The Bible says this all over the place. So you don't need to be in control anymore. That's not this sermon, but that's a good sermon. Um, God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. And Paul is going to get to this point in Romans where he says, hey, if, if God didn't spare his own son, but gave his own son for you, he gave his, the best that he has, the most valuable thing, how is he not going to take care of everything else? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so he's saying God is good. You don't have to look elsewhere because the God who gave you a son is going to meet all your needs. God is gracious. That was last week, and we don't have to prove ourselves because he's his grace. But God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. And the word for glory is kavod, which means weight. And so it's that what God thinks about it has to weigh more than what other people think about us. And when that happens, when God is the most glorious thing in our lives, then we stop feeling the need to, feel, to boast and to feel shame and to compare. To the extent that the glory of God is bigger than the glory of the world around us, and we have his approval through Christ, then our need to boast in order to, to attain self-righteousness or our need to feel shame in order to absorb our unrighteousness, all that it diminishes according to the glory that we, is, that we recognize, not assigned to God. And that's why being here on Sunday mornings and worship points our hearts to him, and that's where we realize what his glory is. And, but then when we, like to the extent that, that we make that a discipline, you know, then all that starts to change in our hearts. Is it possible that our salvation could take away not just religious boasting, but all boasting and all comparison? And that's what Paul's saying. I did, a, um, I did a Lent devotional, which hopefully I'll remember next year when it comes to Lent, because it was really good. It was a version devotional, and they had a different prayer for every week. And the prayer for the first week was, uh, Lord, grant me a life free of comparison. And he just kind of hit different scriptures for every day that week and ended with, Lord, grant me a life free of comparison. How many of you would like a life free of comparison? Oh, man. That would be like a breath of fresh air. 
Let me, um, the band can come back up, and I'm going to wrap up. Um, I got thinking this week about, I thought a lot last week. The, the, the thing I read in the beginning from the pastor about justification, propitiation, redemption, and like how it's just something we should just think about all the time because it's amazing. Man, some, it just hit me in a way, in a deeper way than it's hit me before last week, and it was probably most, more than anything the justification meaning that there's nothing, no one can accuse you of anything anymore because that's your, your sins are as far as the east are from the west. He's taken that away so much that like those accusations don't stick because there's nothing to accuse you of because he's given you the righteousness of Christ. I know that, I preached it, but like it hit me in a different way. But then I started thinking, like, what are the things you really feel accused of? You know, and there's some things that people around you, you know, that, and it can be people at school or it can be people at work or in your family that you feel accused of. But a lot of times the accusations are like, the, like some voice from inside of you, right, that's accusing you of things. What are those accusations? And those are like the, you're not good enough. You've screwed it up too badly. You haven't accomplished enough. You don't have enough. You're not pretty enough or strong enough or outgoing enough. You don't have enough friends or the right friends. Those, I started to think about those accusations. And I think that's where this justification extends to is like, there's no basis for those accusations. Like those can't stick to you anymore. Throughout the Bible, from the very beginning, the adversary, Satan, is described as a liar and as a thief. And I don't talk about the devil enough because I'm always like a little anxious there's going to be new people that think that's crazy. But I've done this a couple times in, um, in history of the church where I've asked, I'm not going to do it today, but where I've asked people like how many of you have had an experience with a supernatural realm that's like not a good supernatural realm, like a demonic supernatural realm, or you have someone that you just trust implicitly that's had that interaction and it's always a half to two-thirds of the church raises their hands and says oh yeah and it's like the devil's tricked us into not talking about the devil it's, which is another form of line which would make perfect sense right you know who lost the battle on easter sunday the devil did and so whatever those accusations are that you hear paul's saying you are free from those accusations like they can't stick to you anymore you're free from comparison you're free from boasting you're free from shame because you've been redeemed and propitiation has been made and you have been justified and we have everything we need in what he's done for us in Christ there's no basis on which to make an accusation against you because you have the full love and righteousness of Christ available to you as a gift that he's a no-strings-attached gift that he's given you. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and bow your heads for a second. And 
give the Lord a minute to speak to you about whatever that accusation is or whatever the thing is you feel like you need to boast in and to offer that before him and give that to him and to be released from it and to rejoice in the gift that he's given you. And in a few minutes when we're singing these these, um, these songs to the Lord, we invite you to, to come up and take communion um, to remember what he's done for us. And we'll be up here with the bread, which is Christ's body that was broken for us, and the cup, which is his blood that's been shed for us, as a way of remembering and celebrating the freedom that we have in Jesus. Father, thank you that... Um, our boasting in our shame, like we don't need to do that anymore. You have granted us a life free of comparison in Christ. What a gift. And God, I pray by your spirit that you would help us to claim that and to live that out and to show the people around us the freedom that is offered in what you've done for us. Love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.